Well, as we've mentioned, we are currently in a sermon series going through Daniel chapters 1 to 6. But actually, starting next week, we're going to take a brief hiatus to do a little mini-series on the Reformation. If you're not aware, this year is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. That's usually marked by the date when the German reformer Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis on the church door in Wittenberg. That was on October 31st, Halloween, October 31st, uh, uh, 1517. And so this year we're celebrating. In commemoration of the 500th anniversary, we've crafted a little mini-series that we're going to start next week. It's called The Five Solas. The Five Solas, as we'll be explaining, were essentially the, the five principles or the five mottos of the Reformation. And in next week's message, actually in each of those messages, um, we, our, our hope is, is, as well as preaching God's word, we want to introduce to you some of the Reformers and their stories. I'd like to get a head start, actually, today, and I want to introduce to you two English reformers named Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. Both men were bishops of the, of the Church of England. Both were key figures in the English Reformation that established a clean break from the um, Roman Catholic Church theologically and institutionally. And both men were also victims to the terrible persecution that took place under the reign of the infamous Bloody Mary. Mary was the eldest daughter of King Henry VIII from his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, uh, the wife that was um, set aside uh, as he sought to divorce her in order to uh, gain a son. So obviously his motivations were rather worldly. and so he set Catherine Aragon aside, he divorced her, um, and she raised her daughter Mary as a staunch Catholic, as she was herself. So Mary, um, she actually wasn't a direct uh, uh, heir to the throne, because later on, after his many wives, Henry VIII finally had a son who became King Edward VI. He was only nine when he took the throne, and he sided with the Reformers. He was very favorable towards the Reformation. Under his reign, the Protestant Church of England firmly rooted itself and strengthened in time to weather a coming storm of persecution. Because Edwards' reign only lasted six years. He died of a terminal illness at the young age of 15. And despite all of their best efforts, his counselors were unable to prevent Mary from ascending the throne. And once she got the crown she set out to undo all of her half-brother's efforts to reform the church, and she began to march England right back to Rome under its papal authority. She reinstated the Catholic Mass. She required services to go back to being conducted in Latin only, prohibiting the use of English. She outlawed the English Bible. She banned the books of the Reformers. And worst of all, she persecuted Protestants really just giving them two options. Renounce your reformational principles or roast at the stake. In the five years of her reign, just five years, no less than 288 Protestants were burnt at the stake. One of them was an archbishop, four were bishops, 21 were clergymen, 55 were women, and four were children. That's how she earned her infamous nickname, 
Bloody Mary. Well, on October 16, 1555, at Oxford University, two men were tied back to back on one stake. Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer were set to be burned for their refusal to renounce the gospel, the gospel that they so tirelessly fought to, to preserve and to proclaim in their land. Witnesses record Ridley as saying to Latimer, Be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flames or else strengthen us to abide it. Shortly after, the fire was lit, and God, in his sovereignty, did not assuage the flames. The two men were set ablaze, and Latimer's famous last words were recorded as this. Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light such a candle in England as I trust shall never be put out. And those were prophetic words, because after Mary's brief but bloody reign, her sister, the one that we know as Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth I, she ascended the throne and unified a divided England under one crown and one church, and thereby securing the legacy of, of faithful martyrs like Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. These two men, they stood in a long line of faithful men and women of whom the world is not worthy. There's a legacy of believers who have equally offended the authorities that be by their devotion to the truth. And we are introduced to three of those, three of those followers of God that stand within that line. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were early predecessors of Ridley and Latimer. They too felt the flames of persecution Flames that I would argue are still continuing to burn this very day. And you could argue that they're only getting hotter. It's only getting worse. Now, it's true that in our context, we're not being threatened with literal flames. Praise God for that. Even though there are brothers and sisters around this world who are suffering literal threats to their lives. But the intensity of the opposition to the gospel even in our land, in our context, is certainly there. And so my question to you this morning is whether you're going to stand in line with these faithful followers, whether you are going to share in this legacy to be one of whom the world was not worthy. I'm going to confront you with some questions that you're going to need to answer for yourself. If you desire to be a faithful follower of God standing in this legacy, then you're going to need to examine your own self by these three questions. I've laid them out for you in an outline in your bulletin if you want to follow along. The first question is this. Friends, can you accept a God who accepts no rivals? Can you accept a God who accepts no rivals? That's the kind of God that our culture just finds utterly offensive. But that's the God we meet in Daniel chapter 3. Whether you're able to follow him into the furnace of persecution will largely depend on whether you can trust in the goodness of a God who seeks the exclusive worship of all peoples in all places in all times. Because let's be honest, the, the flames of persecution, they never touch those who claim that everyone's view of God is equally valid. 
Those who insist that, hey, hey, you have your truth, I have mine, all religious uh, beliefs all lead to the same place, they never have to play the man. They never get burned. Only those who insist that there's only one true God and they'll only worship him. Because that's what we see happening here in Daniel chapter 3. The chapter begins by describing this, this massive statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has installed on an open plain in Babylon that's very reminiscent of another large structure that was built on the plains of Babylon. The Tower of Babel is what I have in mind back in Genesis chapter 11. Both of these massive monuments were dedicated to human glory, to self-glory. This one in our chapter, this image of gold, is described for us as being 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. We're talking about something, the height of a nine-story building. This is how massive it was. Now, it's not very clear as to what the image was. What was on the image? What was it a statue of? Most scholars think it was probably the image of one of the Babylonian gods, maybe Bel uh, being one of their, their primary ones. Uh, probably not an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself. And yet even though he didn't build a statue of his own image, I think it's safe to say that it's still about him. It's still about his vainglory. It's probably him reacting to the dream that we read about in the last chapter. In chapter 2, if you recall, he saw in his dream a giant, massive statue with a head of gold, but with the rest of its body comprised of all these composite materials. And Daniel uh, interpreted the dream for him with, obviously, the help of God. And specifically, he identified Nebuchadnezzar as that head of gold in the dream. But Daniel warned that the empire that he is going to build will eventually be replaced by four other kingdoms. The last one being an eternal kingdom established not by human hands. So with that dream in mind and that interpretation... For Nebuchadnezzar, now in our chapter, to build for himself a statue made entirely of gold is really no mere coincidence. It is a political statement he's making. It's really a theological statement that he's making. He is saying, my kingdom, uh-uh, it is not going to be replaced. There's no one coming after me. My kingdom will last forever. That's the symbolism of having an entire statue made of gold versus just the head of gold. Now we're told that an elaborate worship service was designed for the dedication of this golden image. All kinds of musical instruments involved. They even got a bagpipe. Got some Scottish guy down here to, to play a bagpipe. I, I was surprised by that. Uh, officials from all the far-reaching provinces of Babylon were required to attend. And in verse 4, we are told that all sorts of peoples all sorts of nations and languages. They were all gathered around this image. And at the sound of music, everyone was to fall down and worship the image. Failure to do so would result immediately in being immediately cast into what's described as a burning, fiery furnace. Now, besides just stoking his own ego, what was Nebuchadnezzar trying to accomplish here? Well, I think it's safe to say that that he was not trying to enforce the worship of this image alone. But he was 
What he, what he was trying to do was to unify everyone under one civic religion, where all the various diverse peoples of his kingdom, they could keep their own distinct religions and they could worship their own gods as long as you are willing to bow down to this one common cultural idol that we can all agree upon. He's not saying, bow down to my God instead of yours. Nebuchadnezzar is saying, bow down to my God in addition to yours. He's trying to rule over a religiously diverse people by enforcing a policy of religious pluralism. A policy that accepts all religions and all religious people except for those who won't go along who won't bow down to this idea that no one way is the way, that there are a multitude of ways, a multitude of gods. The only ones who who won't fit within this society that he is establishing, who, who get cast into the furnace of persecution, are those who insist that there is only one true God and we will only worship him. Is there really a great irony here, if you think about it? Because the typical objection to monotheistic faiths, like Christianity or Judaism, is that believing your God is the one true God, the typical objection is that that kind of thinking is going to eventually lead to oppressive and totalitarian behavior, where you start imposing your beliefs on everyone else. You start forcing them to convert to your faith or else suffer the consequences. Now, historically, we can't ignore or deny that such behavior has occurred in predominantly Christian nations. There have been Christian majorities in various cultures that have behaved horribly towards religious minority groups. But it's not just Christian, and it's not just monotheistic faiths that could be guilty of doing such things. I would argue, I would argue that highly Pluralistic cultures, I'm talking about cultures that love to preach tolerance and acceptance as the highest of virtues, those cultures can be oppressively intolerant and only accepting of those who bow down to the cultural idols of tolerance and acceptance. Here's the irony. You have a culture like Babylon's. Babylon's culture, which says you are free to worship whoever you like in any way you like, as long as you do it our way. You're accepted as long as you bow down to this one image, this image that embodies the ethos of our culture, the ethos of the age that says your way cannot be the only way and your God cannot be the only God. So don't try to convert people to your way or to your God. Instead, accept all ways and accept all God's as equally valid, that, my friends, is really the 90-foot idol of our age that we are being compelled to bow to. You know, Christians have a reputation for always trying to convert people to their faith, but I hope you realize that, in fact, pluralists are trying to do the same thing. Just look at Nebuchadnezzar. He was very tolerant of everyone's beliefs as long as they ultimately fit his. You're free to worship any God you like 
as long as you add on my God, which effectively equalizes everyone's religious truth claim, which effectively negates and nullifies everyone's religious truth claim. So on the surface, Nebuchadnezzar looks like a very tolerant person, but underneath we discover a heart of intolerance where he is trying to impose his beliefs on others to convert them by use of force and threat. Even at the end of the chapter, even after he at least recognizes the Lord God's power in rescuing the three friends, he still, even though he recognizes that, he hasn't changed fundamentally. He tries, if you see at the very end, in verse 29, he tries to impose a general reverence to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by use of force, by use of threat. He says, I will tear you limb from limb if you speak a bad word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. My point is that religious pluralism, I know it looks tolerant on the surface, but underneath the veneer, you'll often find a spirit of intolerance. Now, Christianity, on the other hand, I know it looks intolerant on the surface, right? You know, Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life. No one can come to the Father except through him. It seems intolerant. But if you dig deeper, if you look underneath, you'll find a heart of tolerance towards those who disagree. A heart of abounding love and exceeding patience towards those with whom we disagree. Because at the heart of Christianity is a Savior hanging there on a cross, dying for those who disagree with him, who oppose him, who reject him, who hate him. And if you, as a Christian, if you believe Jesus on the cross is the one thing that everyone needs, every single person needs in their life, if a crucified Savior dying for his enemies is the God that we hope and pray everyone bows down to, then how in the world could those convictions ever result in having an oppressive attitude or approach that tries to coerce belief by use of threat or force? Any quote-unquote Christian society that tries to coerce belief, they are behaving in a very non-Christ-like manner. That is not a Christian society. Church, we have no mandate, really we have no need to coerce belief in anyone. In fact, you can't convert someone even if you try because conversion is not your job. It's not within your power. Conversion is only something God can do. Our task is not to convert others. Our task is to commend to others an open statement of the truth, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4. Our task is to know how to give a reasonable defense of the faith, but friends, we don't need to be defensive about it. Our God never feels threatened by the unbelief of others, and neither should we. Look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These guys, they felt no need to defend themselves. I mean, just look at what they say in verse 16. Verse 16, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, we have no need to defend ourselves. 
They're not defensive. But then you look at Nebuchadnezzar, and this man is about to blow up. He's, he's going to blow his top. He, it says he's filled with fury. Why is he so angry? It's because his God is threatened by the unbelief of others, by the refusal of others to bow down and agree. That's why he is being so defensive here. But the Christian, the Christian is the one who believes in a God who felt no need to defend himself when he had to stand before the authorities. When Jesus was attacked for his faith, he didn't retaliate. He quietly entrusted himself to his Father in heaven. Now, if that's the God that you worship, if that's the God that you serve, if that's the God that you hope and pray everyone else will one day worship, then your attitude and approach to people, especially people of other faiths, people of no faith, it should be anything but arrogant, anything but antagonistic. It should be marked like Jesus, marked like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with a quiet confidence with a humble security, even in the face of unbelief and opposition. And let's face it, the flames of persecution will come for God's people. Now, of course, as we said, you can avoid it. You can avoid persecution if you simply bow down to the spirit of pluralism, the God that accepts all gods. But if you insist on worshiping a God who accepts no rivals, then don't be surprised when the flames start licking. Do you accept a God who accepts no rivals? That's the first question we have to wrestle with. The second is this. Can you trust a God who might not deliver? Friends, if you have a one-dimensional view of God where he is always there to rescue you from any single trial you face, then you are bound to be disappointed. And you won't understand how a furnace, a furnace could actually be God's will for you. Because if you read on, you're going to see a God who gives and takes away. A God who delivers his saints from the flames of persecution and yet at times does not. Let's start back up in in verse 8. We are told that certain court magicians have grown jealous of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They informed then the king that these Jews have refused to bow down to the golden image. Such inaction, such refusal would have been interpreted not only as a personal offense to the king, it's an act of blasphemy to all the gods, but of course, these three men could not betray their allegiance to the one true God. Now take note with me how just like back in chapter 1, when these men sought to swim against the tide, to go against the grain, they didn't make a big stink about it, right? I mean, they, they didn't start a big public protest. They didn't draw all this attention to themselves for standing up for the truth. They just tried to faithfully obey their God. They quietly refused to go along with the current of culture. Now, in verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar as we saw, gets quite upset, quite defensive, and he gives them one more chance or it's off to the furnace. And at the end of verse 15, he poses this very threatening question. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Well, the three friends answer that their God is the God who is able to deliver them from the burning, fiery furnace. 
But look, look at verse 18. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, there are people today who will see those words, but if not, and will interpret that as a sign of weak faith, as as if they didn't trust God enough. They doubted God. If a Christian today were to say something similar, "I, I believe God will deliver me from this trial I'm going through, but if not, that right there, there are those who will say that the reason you're not delivered, the reason you don't experience rescue, you don't experience healing, you don't experience restoration is because you said or you just thought, but if not. And I want to emphatically say that they're wrong. That kind of teaching is wrong. That doesn't sound, saying but if not, that does not sound like weak faith. That actually sounds like what true faith in God would say. If you insist that God must deliver you from your trials, if you refuse to leave open the possibility that God might not, then it would seem to me that you have great faith, not in God, but in your plans for God. You don't have great faith in God. You have great faith in your agenda for God. True faith says in the face of suffering, oh God, let this trial pass over me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's what faith in God looks like, where you approach him without a predetermined outcome in mind that you insist on him to obey. Now, as the story goes, God's will was for them to be delivered from the flames. They're rescued just as they believe God is able to rescue. But let's be careful here not to take their story and to treat it as this story of divine deliverance as normative for all of God's people in all times. Otherwise, what would you conclude about Nicholas Ridley or Hugh Latimer or those nearly 300 believers who weren't delivered from the fire during the reign of Bloody Mary? Were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego more faithful to God than Ridley and Latimer? Was God more faithful to those three men than than to the other two? You might be tempted to conclude that, but then, then I would turn you and turn your attention to Hebrews chapter 11. Actually, I, I would like you to turn there. Hebrews chapter 11, if you're using that Black Pew Bible, it's found on page 1932. And Hebrews 11 is what is popularly known as the biblical hall of faith. I was taught that, to call it that. It's the biblical hall of faith chronicling the stories of famous figures in the Old Testament and how they were faithful to God. Now, in verse 33, the author goes on to list some other faithful saints, not as well known, and some of them anonymous. Look at verse 33. Who, who through, through faith, they conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire. Those last two are clear references, of course, to the book of Daniel, to the events here in our chapter, and later on in chapter 6. Let's keep reading in verse 34. 
They escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. Now, did you notice how there was no pause whatsoever between some quenched the power of fire, some became mighty in war and put armies to flight, and some were tortured. Others suffered. Others were sawn in two and killed by the sword. This seamless transition tells me that we're still talking about the same kind of people, people deserving to be in the hall of faith. The point is, the point is that you can't judge faithfulness, either God's or ours, based on the outcome alone. In both outcomes, life or death, rescue or succumbing to persecution, God is faithful and so were the individuals. Whether you're delivered from the flames of persecution or you die in them, whether you escape them or, to succumb, or succumb to them, the outcome, the outcome is not what determines God's faithfulness or yours. Now, if that's true, if that's the case, then what does? Well, I think this story is saying faithfulness is not determined by whether you escape the furnace, but by whether God is actually with you in the furnace and if you have the eyes of faith to see him there. That leads to our third and final question. Can you see God with you in the furnace of suffering? If we keep reading in verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar is enraged. He orders the furnace heated seven times hotter, and he has, has them cast into the burning, fiery flames. And then look at verse uh, 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, a lot of ink has been spilt over the years trying to identify this fourth man in the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar apparently thinks that there's something supernatural about this man. There's something divine about this mysterious figure, and that's why he says it looks like a son of God. Later on, in verse 28, if you look there, he says that the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego has sent his angel to deliver his servants. Not just one of his angels, but his angel, likely referring to the angel of the Lord. Whenever the angel of the Lord appears in the Old Testament, humans, they fall down and they prostrate themselves in worship. And the angel of the Lord willingly receives that worship, which is why most people think that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is none other than the pre-incarnate Son of God. It's Jesus in his pre-incarnate state, which is why, at the same time, many think that this angel 
In Daniel 3, this fourth person in the furnace is also the pre-incarnate son. This is Jesus with them in the flames. At the very end, in verse 29, the very last verse of verse 29, Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges that there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And little did he know how profoundly true that statement is. No other God rescues like our God. Only Jesus rescued by going into the furnace with us. He could have easily just, just caught those three men as they were falling in. He could have easily just snatched them out right immediately when they were in. But no, he goes into the furnace. He's a God who's not immune to suffering, but rather well acquainted with it. And he suffers. He suffers, not so that we never have to suffer. There's no promise of that. No, he suffers so that when we suffer, we can be sure, we can be confident that he is with us. He is well acquainted with what we're experiencing. Jesus was cast into the ultimate furnace of suffering so that he can walk with us through the the much smaller furnaces that we experience in our lives. I, I want you to picture with me Jesus kneeling in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're told in all the Gospels that he was in such distress and agony that, quote, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. That was Jesus In Gethsemane. But prior to that, in all of the Gospels, Jesus had been depicted as resolute to die, right? He he had set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. He was headed to Jerusalem. All his disciples were anxious and worried, but he knew exactly what was waiting for him. So you would expect that when his time would come, when his hour would arrive, that he wouldn't crack. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before a fiery furnace, or just like Ridley and Latimer tied to a stake, they all faced death without blinking, with no bloody sweat. They they played the man. They had no pleas to God. They, they, They didn't plead out to God for another way. They accepted their fate. And so it makes you wonder, what happened to Jesus? What happened to all of his resoluteness? Why is he sweating? Why is he praying for the cup to pass? You have to understand that for all of the courageous men and women of church history, those who have given their lives for the gospel, their deaths were different than Jesus's. They faced martyrdom while Jesus faced a penal sacrifice. See, martyrs went to their death trusting that God was with them in the furnace or God was with them on the stake, but Jesus faced death completely alone. He was offered up as a sin-atoning, wrath-averting sacrifice that bears the judgment of God against all human sin, against your sin and mine. You see, stretching all the way back into eternity past, God the Son shared perfect, unbroken fellowship with God the Father 
It was a perfect love. But now on Golgotha, on the cross, as, as the cross was looming larger over Jesus, he was faced with the prospect knowing that the Father would turn his face away. The Father would forsake the Son. The Father would treat the Son as a wretched sinner. No one has ever faced the kind of furnace that Jesus faced. In one of his sermons on the Garden of Gethsemane, Jonathan Edwards explains to us why Jesus was sweating so much. He writes this, The sorrow and distress which his soul then suffered arose from that lively and full and immediate view which, with, which he had then been given of that cup of wrath. The thing that Christ's mind was so full of at that time was the dread his feeble human nature had of that dreadful cup, which was vastly more terrible than Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. He had then a near view of that furnace of wrath in which he was soon to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowing of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was going to suffer. That's the vision that Jesus was given in Garden of Gethsemane. You see what's happening to him? He was sweating so much in that garden because he was being given a preview of the fiery furnace of God's burning wrath. He was led to the edge of the furnace to peer inside to contemplate what he would soon suffer on the cross. If we were in his shoes, I'm certain that all of us would have recoiled. I'm certain that all of us would have refused to follow through with God's plan. None of us would have played the man and went ahead. No other man, no other God is even willing to contemplate rescuing in this way. Only Jesus is willing to say, by going into the ultimate furnace of God's wrath for you, in your place. So now, if you, or I should say, when you get thrown into the cultural furnace of persecution, when you get mocked and ridiculed for your Christian faith, when you lose opportunities, you might lose your job, you might lose a precious relationship, you can be sure that the furnace that you're going through is not a punishment. You're not being punished for your sins. Yes, the flames are hot, but at least they are not the flames of God's wrath. The flames of God's wrath have been assuaged for you in the work of Christ. So you can tell yourself, because Jesus was thrown into the ultimate furnace for me, the flames around me right now, they're not punishing me. They're actually serving me. This furnace, yes, it was meant by the culture to punish me for not conforming, but now it has been transformed by Christ to refine me, to burn off all the dross, to make me more like him. That's what's happening. If you have had Christ accept the furnace for you. And you can be sure that now in your own furnaces, He's there with you. 
He is Emmanuel. He is God with us in a very real sense. And so let me just say plainly, if you don't have a God who walks with you through the furnace of suffering, then friends, you don't have a God who is worthy to bow to. Turn to Jesus instead, because no other God is able to save you in his way. Let me pray for you. Father, I just pray that you will give us a clear sense, a clear sense of the gospel, of what Jesus has done for us through his death and resurrection, that we might have hope and confidence and security going through whatever suffering you will for us. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.